I'm with Dr. Dan Siegel. Hi, Dan. Hi there, Serge. So, uh, maybe a um, broad question is, how did you get into uh, all that stuff that you're famous for? <laughs> what a funny question. Um, I don't know about the famous for. I can just tell you what I've been up to. Um, you know, I've been working um, trying to combine various fields of science into the field of psychotherapy and in the field of education so that we can understand how the mind develops, how we can perhaps even define the mind and define what mental health is. So in all of those ways, um, I think what happened to me was I was very interested in staying very close to a scientific foundation for understanding the subjective nature of the mind. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, really how things unfolded. So a scientific foundation for understanding the uh, experience of the mind. That's right. And um, so what did that lead you to? Well, it's led to so many different things. Uh, on one level, you know, it's led me to draw on over a dozen different fields of science from uh, the field of, let's say, physics and complexity theory to uh, anthropology and linguistics to studying psychology and its various forms and neuroscience as well as, you know, our field in psychotherapy and combining those into something that we call interpersonal neurobiology, where we have now a, you know, a library of professional textbooks, we have organizations, uh, I have a certificate program at my institute, we have you know, a non-profit organization that exists. It's a wonderful flowering of a community of people really around the planet um, trying to think deeply about how to bring more health and compassion into the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you said earlier that there was a definition of the mind. So maybe do you want to share some of this? Sure, absolutely. Well, here's the thing that happened. You know, when I was a psychiatry trainee, I realized that we had never talked about the mind. And so in um, 1989, I became a research fellow looking into the nature of how the healthy mind develops. But I noticed that even in that field, in psychology, the mind was not defined. And so I ran a group in 1992, the beginning of the decade of the brain, where we were asking the basic question, you know, what is the connection between the mind and the brain? Uh-huh. And the group was able to define the brain pretty easily. But actually, of the 40 scientists, there was no agreement on what the mind was and so to keep the group going, I had to come up with a definition of the mind that it turns out um, 100% of them, all 40 people, agreed with this as a working place. And I've been using that for the last 18 years. And it's really changed the way um, I understand the process of psychotherapy and how we can understand how mental health develops. So maybe we just take a few seconds before you give that definition to have people... Uh, who are listening ask themselves what their own definition of the mind is and then back to you. Okay. So, you know, if you're listening to this and wondering about the mind, you're, you're not alone because 
you know, of over 89,000 mental health practitioners I've surveyed directly, face-to-face, only 2 to 5% have ever been given even one lecture on the mind. And it turns out, unfortunately, that even the same small percentage is true of given, being given a lecture on mental health. Now, before we get too upset with ourselves as mental health practitioners, I should just say that, you know, even in the field of the philosophy of mind, many philosophers of mind say we should never define the mind because it will limit it. And even scientists who are actively studying the mind say that they don't have a definition of the mind because they don't know what it is. That's why they're studying it, which is a totally reasonable place for those um, academicians to be. But for those of us who are practitioners that are bringing people into our office to try to help them develop a healthier mind, a stronger mind, it for me, it just didn't seem to make sense for us not to have a definition of mind. So I offered the following definition of mind to this group. There was 100% agreement, and I've been using it ever since for myself and my students who study either, you know, here at the Institute and the online courses and seminars or lectures I give. And it's been a useful definition, and here's how the definition goes. So this is a working definition, meaning we don't stick to it like it's the final say, but it's an awfully useful place to begin. And it's a working definition of a core aspect of the mind, and that is that the mind can be defined as an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. Uh And when we unpack that, we see that embodied is a word meaning that whatever the mind is, we make sure that we don't limit it to the skull, so that at least there's something going on in the whole of the body. And then the word relational means that this personal entity we call mind is actually quite dependent on our connections with other people, our relationships with others. And this part of the definition, I think, sometimes makes people nervous, like, I want to own my own mind. But if you just study culture and relationships, you realize that our mental life is profoundly influenced, not only by our bodies, but by our connections with other people. So this is where the relational comes in. Uh-huh. And you say an embodied relational process, the word process means that the mind is not a noun, it's a verb. It's an action item. And in science, we use a phrase called an emergent property, which means that when elements of a system interact, there's a process that emerges from the interaction of those elements. And that emergent property is what we're saying the mind is. In this case, it's both relational and embodied. And this emergent property does something very specific. And we're defining it this way as a process that regulates the flow of energy and information. So energy is a physics property of the capacity to do stuff. And information here is a word in science that's used to mean a symbol, something that represents something other than itself, like the word Empire State Building. There is the building there in New York, but the phrase Empire State Building is not the building. It's information that stands for, symbolizes, represents the building itself. So that's information. Flow just means something changing across time. And then we come to the central word in our definition, which is regulation. 
is a process that regulates the flow of energy information. And to regulate, what we come to realize is that regulation implies you, like when you regulate a car, you're going to monitor that thing you're influencing, and then you're going to modify it. So in this case, you have to be able to sense energy and information flow and also shape it in a direction if you're moving toward health that we'll define in a few moments about what mental health is. But so I want to I want to just yeah. just stick it here to not to minimize any of the other points, but to just stick to the word regulatory process. That by simply by putting the emphasis there, then there is uh, an implicit uh, an explicit function for the role of psychotherapy. That if the mind is a process that is regulatory, then uh, psychotherapy has the ability to correct the uh, uh, dysfunctions in the flow and to aim for optimal health and well-being. Absolutely. That's right. That you can, um, by defining mental health as we can do in just a moment, you can actually strengthen the mind to move toward mental health. You can actually teach clients how to monitor their inner flow or their interpersonal flow, because it's in both places, um, with more stability to monitor with more depth and clarity. So basically, you get a clearer picture of energy and information flow. That's a teachable skill. Yeah, and 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 uh, as a result, also my sense of it is you then consider a lot of um, uh, the DSM as symptoms and uh, things that are related to these dysfunctions, or uh, as opposed to something that in and of itself uh, is a problem. That's exactly right, and we can get to the DSM in a moment when we get to mental health, but just to finish the regulation part, yeah, you can have someone uh, learn to modify, to to modulate energy and information flow toward health as well, and so they can do that with more strength and specificity in in what they're doing. So in all these ways, what we have with this definition is a total shift in how, as mental health practitioners, we can approach our our craft, our art, our science, really, so that we say we are mental health practitioners, we are psychotherapists, therapists of the mind. And even though philosophers of mind and scientists of mind, or even in our past, we in mental health have not defined the mind, and we could say that now with absolute clarity, we, in fact, are in a position to break that trend and say, let's actually define the mind and we can actually define mental health mm-hmm. and so we're in a position I think to really strengthen what we do as a community of mental health practitioners because there's never been a time on this planet when our human family has needed us more as mental health practitioners than in the unbelievably stressful catastrophe driven day-to-day difficult lives we all lead and we need to strengthen our minds to really cope with the kind of world we live in now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that would, of course, be a great segue for a definition of mental health. Yes. So, you know, you see descriptions of uh, illness, of course, in the DSM, uh, but you don't see an attempt to describe mental health. Now, in positive psychology, you wonderfully see a, a movement to, to describe mental health, but but there's also no definition there of a central mechanism that underlies 
things like flexibility and happiness, wisdom, joy, compassion, kindness. All these things we can know are a part of, you know, leading uh, a healthful life. There's no underlying mechanism. What I want to suggest to you, and this is a, a long line of reasoning I, I describe in, in the Mindsight book, um, you know, is that there is at its root a process called integration that lies beneath mental health. And integration is not just a generalized term, it's a scientific term meaning um, the linkage of differentiated parts of a system. And when this process of integration happens, a system moves like a choir, for example, toward harmony. You allow different elements of the choir to have different overtones as they're singing, let's say, Amazing Grace, but then they sing together. And in that linkage of differentiated parts, you can feel the vitality of a harmonious flow. And that's what integration creates. Right. So in other words, uh, the, to use the analogy with the choir, um, what happens in integration is you don't have clones without personality. Uh, you don't have disharmony, chaos, but you have differences and you have integration of these differences into something that is harmonious. That's exactly right. In fact, those are the, the, the predictors when you look at complexity theory, though it doesn't use the term integration because... For a mathematician, and complexity is a form of probability theory, and it comes from mathematics, for them, integration means addition, like integrating 5 and 3 gives you 8, and the differences between 5 and 3 don't matter. They disappear. So that is why in the mathematics we're going to refer to, they actually don't refer to the term integration. In plain language, we can use the term integration as the linkage of differentiated parts. So, in fact, the sum... The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The so in, you in retain the, your differences while you achieve linkage. So the, the mathematician would be interested in eight, and uh, uh, we are interested in the three, the five, and the eight. Exactly. We're interested in that system. And so if you and I, Serge, are integrated, what it would mean is I honor the difference between me and you. I actually encourage you to find your own unique passions, your own unique interests, and you do the same in me, and then not only are we differentiated, but then we, we have compassionate communication with one another, so we link through the sharing of energy and information flow, which is what a relationship is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, um, you mentioned the term mindsight. In terms yes. of cultivating that ability, and I, uh, as opposed to, I assume sight as opposed to blind. Do you want to? Oh, right, right, exactly. Do you want to um, talk a little more about that? Yeah, sure. You know, when this definition of the mind uh, became something that was very useful, and I reflected on the concepts that were emerging in my own inner world um, long before that period. When I was in medical school, I had professors who didn't see the mind. Uh, the inner subjective world of a person. And, you know, I had experiences being a young psychotherapist where I felt that this ability to see the internal world in my own closeted mind myself, I, I had this concept of mindsight, um, I found that's what was missing in people's development with their parents and, you know, in the work we did in therapy. It's what I had to try to cultivate within them. And so by the time, you know, this group came around in 1992, 
you know, I was fascinated with what a scientist would do with the idea of mind and then finding they didn't have a definition of mind. It was like, whoa. So mind sight became a term that not only meant seeing the mind of yourself and others, so it's like insight and empathy as a starting place, but beyond that, it allows you to track and transform energy and information flow inside yourself, your body, inside a relationship, this communication pattern, um, and it also lets you understand how the mind itself functions and moving it toward integration. Because here's what became clear for me as a therapist. I noticed a pattern where my patients would come in with either rigid states or chaotic states. And if I could teach them to monitor their internal world with more clarity and modify it toward integration, that is toward linking differentiated parts, the rigidity dissipated, the chaos became less frequent and often disappeared, and a harmonious state would emerge. And this kept on happening over and over and over again. So I kept on thinking, well, maybe what's at the heart of DSM is not so much the differences across all of those different syndromes, but maybe the DSM is a description of impaired integration. So when I first came across the concept of complexity theory and, and rigidity and chaos, I opened up the DSM, I think it was three at the time, and I looked at every symptom of every syndrome, just randomly kind of poking my finger around, and every single one was an example of rigidity, chaos, or both. So then I said, okay, well then when patients come to me, no wonder they're in states of rigidity or chaos or both, and no wonder you can fit them somewhere generally in the DSM, but maybe the bigger issue isn't trying to confine them to a category and get insurance payment. Maybe the issue is really that integration is impaired, and my job is to seek out where differentiated systems don't exist and allow them to differentiate, and then once they differentiate it, then link them together using the focus of attention and using that model people started getting better and so I began teaching you know students who started to study with me and it wasn't until they reported back to me that they could use this same technique that I felt bold enough to actually start teaching about it and writing about it because I wanted to make sure it wasn't just some weird you know conviction I had like you know I give a person a purple popsicle and they get better <laughs> and so I say purple popsicles are the key to everything so once my seminar students who were really you know very experienced therapists some of them in practice 20 30 years started using this mindsight approach where you track energy information flow and try to move it toward linking differentiated parts um they over and over and again would assure me that this approach was you know revolutionizing what they as experienced therapists could do and I felt like okay it's not just some idiosyncratic thing that I was doing that's why I wrote the mindsight book uh -huh. to make this available to not only therapists but to the general public you know so maybe um, you know let's talk a little bit about what uh, rigidity and chaos versus integration look like uh, as you're dealing with a client. So obviously not all the cases of the DSM, but maybe one case or two uh, that gives some kind of a concrete flavor of how sure. you notice that. Sure. Well, uh, you know, a, a, an example of rigidity uh, would be, for example, depression. Um, rigidity might also be the recurrent 
um, obsessions of someone with a obsessive compulsive disorder. And when we could start with that one, for example. Yeah. Um, you also see within a, the same disorder examples of chaos. So the flood of panic in someone with OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, would be an example of being um, chaotically intruded upon by memories or images of frightening things. Um, so there, um, what I found very helpful was to look at, um, you know, a model of the way the brain evolved over hundreds of millions of years to have a system that's a circuit that can sometimes be excessively differentiated. It's, it checks for danger. And this checking system overlaps in large part with a lot of the systems that, that Jeff Schwartz talks about um, in the idea that you have a system that looks for error detection. It's mm-hmm. a little bit different, but I think they share a lot in common. Um, but in the approach that I do, it really is looking at integration and the fact that this circuit becomes excessively differentiated. Now, so uh, I just wanted to stop just slowly. Uh, so in that sense, the mind is uh, one of its qualifi- one of its uh, key characteristic as a regulatory uh, uh, process is to be adaptive. And uh, you're noticing when it's uh, rigid that it's no longer capable of adapting, and uh, when it's chaotic that it's simply overwhelmed by and not able to function properly either. Exactly. You know, Serge, you got this, and I, it makes me so uh, feel so great inside because you know this approach is so new. Uh, when people really get it and get it as clearly obvious as you do, it's just so it feels so deeply moving because. Thanks. You know, this uh, it's been a it's been a lonely journey of um, thinking in ways that are science based but not shared by anyone. So sometimes I feel like I go out teaching so much just to try to not only share this with people but to just to have like a community of like-minded people uh, mm-hmm. rather than feeling so isolated. Mm-hmm. You know? So I really appreciate your reflections on that. that. But that's exactly it. That It's exactly like you say, and, and I'd like to hear more from you, so go ahead. No, so my question from there is that, um, then uh, you're, you're focusing on the, the mind not being able to, to function properly in being adaptive. And, uh, and so you're noticing that. Right, exactly. So the mind, which is a relational embodied process, it needs to adapt. That's what the function is. Um, because we are relational creatures and we are embodied creatures both, you see. So when you see this in OCD, of course, you know, you want to look where this rigidity and chaos is coming from. So you say in your mind, okay, if there's rigidity and chaos, I know there's impaired integration. That's step one. Number two, you say, if there's impaired integration, I know differentiation is likely blocked and or linkage. So then you go looking for it. In this case, with OCD, it's pretty clear there's this excessively differentiated circuit called I call it the checker circuit that's evolved over millions of years. It can sometimes get overactive from being exposed to the streptococcus bacteria because there's certain proteins on the membrane of that bacteria that mimic the proteins on this checker circuit area of the brain, um, including you know the caudate and the amygdala. You you can that circuit gets overactive and you start excessively looking for things that could uh, endanger you. So what I do in the in the process of therapy, you'll see this in the chapter. I think it's chapter uh, twelve or something like that on temporal integration. You can see, you know, where a person in this domain of integration has got to learn to allow this part to become more part of their life rather than being a renegade circuit. And you can see step by step approaches to linking this excessively differentiated circuit. 
And that's that's the approach. And then amazingly, I've worked with kids as young as six years of age where you can take people with pretty significant obsessive-compulsive uh, features and allow them to take this integrative approach using mindfulness, using teaching about the brain, using a way of integrating um, this circuit into a larger whole of the person's life, that they stop having this rigidity and chaos. It's quite remarkable, actually, um, because the principles are all there, and and the foundation is so um, basic, and yet it's so powerful. So is that is it fair to say that it's an extension, if you want, of the mindfulness practice? That is, if you notice an intruding thought, um, not to fight it, to notice it, and in that way accept it and integrate it, and that you're applying that to uh, dysfunctional circuits or loops of um, of the mind. Yeah, I think that's a nice way of saying it. I, I myself only learned about mindfulness about five years ago, which was way after you know developing this approach to OCD and integration, all that stuff. But mindfulness fits in beautifully um, as, I think, an integrative uh, process, exactly like you're saying it. Absolutely. And that's the beautiful thing about you know the work I, I, the world I work in is called interpersonal neurobiology, and we try to take what's called a consilient approach. So you you want to be totally grounded in science and taking different disciplines of science. And then when new things emerge, like for us new, you know, mindfulness, uh, even though it's been around for thousands of years, for us it's new, you can see where when you stay grounded in science and don't play favorites to any one discipline or other but look for the universal findings, then you can invite other perspectives in and suddenly all sorts of clarity happens and you can see why mindfulness is so useful in the process of, of helping people develop mental health. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have um, talked about how uh, there is a relationship between mindfulness, a mindfulness practice, attachment, attunement, resonance, and well-being. So do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. You know, in the Mindsight book, I talk a lot about this, how it applies to you know, the clients, to patients. And then the, the latest book, the Mindful Therapist book, which just came out this month, um, it, you'll find a way for therapists themselves to develop integration and mindsight in their own lives. Um, and I felt that was an important next step to, to do because in many ways, um, I think uh, this it's called the Mindful Therapist because mindfulness as, a, as an overarching construct uh, both being intentional in what you do, being creative in what you do, and being contemplative in what you do, many ways of interpreting the term mindfulness and being a mindful therapist, I think it helps promote this capacity for you to integrate your own life. And in the book, what we do is go step by step together, me and the reader together, we walk through these steps of understanding how you can have that in your own life, because I think that's an important place to start in any therapeutic um, endeavor that the therapist herself, himself, you know, have these internal ways of promoting mindsight to see the mind, promote energy and information flow toward integration. Um, and, and there's a lot to say about it, but in, in the time here, I just want to say that it's, it's an incredible moment of bringing all of this inc- useful way of helping ourselves and helping our clients, our patients, all into the same tent. So we're speaking the same language about attunement, integration, promoting mindset, about looking at mental health as an outcome of this harmonious, adaptive flow. 
and it allows us to really embrace the importance of relationships while also embracing the importance of understanding the body and the nervous system in the body and in particular the brain as a fundamental shaping structure of the nervous system. So it's just, I think, uh, an amazing moment to be a mental health practitioner, to be a therapist, and uh, to come together as a community of different therapists, literally integrating as we honor our own differences and then link together in helping bring healing to all the suffering that exists in our communities. Mm. So that sounds so beautiful as it said. It sounds uh, like uh, uh, a closing statement of hope and, uh, you know, vision for the future. So I'm wondering if we should leave it at that or if you feel that uh, you would want to add something for this conversation. Well, the only thing I would add is a, a, a big um, uh, thank you very much and a gesture of gratitude. I was there. We, I'd give you a hug and just say, look, mm. you know, we're in this together. This is this is a moment in our work in, in mental health that we realize also that we move from helping individuals and couples and families in therapy to realizing we're all a part of an extended community, that social act, action and, and really social advocacy is a part of, I think, the next step uh, for us as therapists to bring people from suffering to healing and then to bring them into full interconnection in the communities in which we live, which includes the planet, which is waiting for us to take care of it. So as you as you talk, I have this vision of um, the therapist as an enzyme, as an agent of integration, facilitating this process of integration into yeah. a larger whole. But the difference is, of course, not people losing themselves in it uh, and being digested right. in the sense of the digestion in the you know the, ner- the digestive system, but remaining individuals and integrating into a larger whole. And the sense of the therapist as having this this very active role in the beautiful process. It's fantastically said, Serge. I, I, I couldn't say it better. And that's why I think integration, because it holds on to our differentiated selves and honors that and cherishes it. And you can take joy in who you are and simultaneously you encourage that in other people and you encourage the linkage and the realization that, in fact, we are all interconnected and how you can promote that. Ultimately, the end result of integration is not only health, it's compassion and kindness. Mm-hmm. So that's where we can really wait till the next installment and talk more uh, <laughs> when we meet in person or wherever. And, and uh, you know, it's an important place, I think, for us to reflect all together. Thanks, Stan. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.